I ask that you join me in your Bibles in Psalm 105. We're going to finish that up today. Psalm 105. So we continue to talk about the covenant faithfulness of God. Psalm 105. We're going to read the psalm again. And then we're going to start at verse 16 in our focus and then finish up through the end of the psalm from there. Psalm 105, starting at verse one, says, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell about his wondrous works. Honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wondrous works he has done. His wonders and the judgments he has pronounced. You offspring of Abraham, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he ordained for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham swore to Isaac and confirmed to Jacob as a decree and to Israel as a permanent covenant. I will give you the land of Canaan as your inherited portion. When they were few in number, very few indeed as resident aliens in Canaan, wandering from nation to nation, and from one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their behalf. Do not touch my anointed ones or harm my prophets. He called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put in an iron collar. Till the time his prediction came true, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent for him and released him. The rulers of peoples set him free. He made him master over his household, ruler over all his possessions, binding his officials at will and instructing his elders. Then Israel went to Egypt. Jacob lived as an alien in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them more numerous than their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people and to deal deceptively with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his miraculous signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and it became dark, for did they not defy his commands? He turned their water into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land was overrun with frogs, even in their royal chambers. He spoke and insects came, gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and lightning throughout their land. He struck their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number. They devoured all the vegetation in their land and consumed the produce of their land. He struck all the firstborn in their land, all their first progeny. Then he brought Israel out with silver and gold. 
and no one among his tribes stumbled. Egypt was glad when they left, for the dread of Israel had fallen on them. He spread a cloud as a covering and gave a fire to light up the night. They asked and he gave quail and satisfied them with bread from heaven. He opened a rock and water gushed out. It flowed like a stream in the desert. Verse 42. For he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. He brought his people out with rejoicing. His chosen ones with shouts of joy. He gave them the lands of the nations and they inherited what other people had worked for. Verse 45. All this happened so that they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us to gather, to assemble as your people, to worship you, Lord, to be fed and nourished from your word. Father, have your way through the preaching of your word. This is your word. These are your covenant promises, and we are in desperate need for a move of your Holy Spirit. We need you, God of heaven and earth. And so, Father, may our hearts be encouraged over this time. Father God, may you draw us closer into yourself. Lord God, that you would gently confront patterns of thought and ways of life that are contrary to your holy will and your righteous nature and character and bring us to repentance as your people that our lives would be pleasing unto you so that in all things you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the important things that we have to remember about the Word of God is that it's not a history book. It contains history, but Scripture isn't a history book. The Word of God isn't a science book. Some science type stuff in there. But it's not to teach us science. It's important that we remember that scripture is covenantal in nature. That there is a God. He is the one true living God. There is no one like him. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He rules and he reigns over all things and he has graciously made himself known in a way that leads to salvation. That's one of the reasons that's the that's the main reason that we have the scriptures. It is God making himself known. There's a song that my pastor used to quote all the time. And and in that song, I believe it's Psalm 78. And one of the verses in Psalm 78 says, if, I, if it is Psalm 78, if I'm recalling correctly, says unto the children of Israel, God revealed his acts. But unto Moses, God made known his ways. That's relationship. That's covenantal relationship. This is God making his acts and his ways known to his people. That's a big deal for us because the only way for us to have life The only way for us to have joy and hope and experience salvation is for God to make himself known. If God does not make himself known, then we don't know anything. He's made himself known. The most glorious one, the most beautiful one, the most powerful one, the most majestic one 
The only way to life and joy and fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction has made himself known. That is one of the main reasons, if not the main reasons, that we have sacred scripture. It's covenantal. We don't read the Bible so that we can win arguments. We don't read the Bible so that we can check some type of moral check in the box to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We read the scriptures because in the scriptures we are communing with God and we are encouraged in our hearts. One of the ways that we are encouraged is that we see how God has dealt faithfully with his people in the past. And as we see and read how God faithfully dealt with his people in the past, it reminds us that God will also deal faithfully with us. Do you believe that God will deal faithfully with you? Marinate on that for a second. Like, do you honestly believe that God loves you and is faithful to you, that he has been faithful to you, that he will continue to be faithful to you? Do you believe that God cares for you? Do you believe that God cares about your well-being in the totality of who you are? Do we believe that? It's an important question to ask ourselves. Do we believe that? It's easy not to sometimes, is it not? It's easy not to believe that. It is easy to feel ignored and unseen sometimes. Especially when we're actually experiencing it. When we're actually experiencing being ignored or unseen or mistreated or any of those things, we have to remember that the faithfulness of God is not dependent upon the behavior of mankind. It's not. That's right. And we see this here because in this psalm, we see human beings oppressing other human beings. We see human beings mistreating other human beings. We see genuine trial and suffering and adversity in the psalms. But none of that stops God from being faithful to his people. None of it. None of it prevents God from being faithful to his people. But if we look, for instance, at verse eight in the psalm, it says he remembers his covenant forever. The promise he ordained for a thousand generations. God remembers his covenant. I want to talk a little bit about covenant Before we proceed this morning, because a covenant is a sacred kinship, it's a bond between two parties and it's ratified or brought into effect by swearing an oath. Two parties come together and the covenant is made real when they both pledge themselves to it and agree to it. Now, you want to know the amazing, wonderful and scandalous thing about the covenant that we have with God and the nature of that covenant is that God brings us into covenant relationship with himself. But in order to do that, God made covenant within himself. I'll show you what I'm talking about. God calls Abraham and he promises Abraham 
He promises Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. He promises Abraham that he would multiply his descendants like the stars of heaven and like the sands by the seashore. But then when God is bringing Abraham into covenant relationship with himself, in in those days they would cut animals. They would literally cut the animals in two. And one of the things that that symbolized is just as they were cutting those animals in two, whoever wasn't faithful to uphold the covenant, that's what would happen to them. It was a penalty for not being faithful to the covenant, right? Now, so God brings Abraham. These animals are cut in two. But you know what God causes to happen to Abraham? He calls Abraham to fall asleep. (laughs) He causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And while Abraham is in this deep sleep, God himself passes in between the cut animals. That was a foreshadowing of the person and the work of Christ. Because in order to make the covenant promises of God a reality for us, it wasn't contingent upon our faithfulness. Christ himself lived the faithful life and died in our place and shed his blood in order to make the covenant promises of God a reality in our lives. Amen. You understand what I'm saying here? That's an amazing and scandalous thing. It's like, wait a minute, we don't deserve that. No, <laughs> that is the grace of God in action. It's the grace of God. We have to remember that God's covenant promises God. And and so this oath, the book of Hebrews teaches us that because God could swear by no one higher, he swore by himself. That it is the name and the reputation and the glory of God put on the line. God says, I will uphold my faithfulness. So much so that when we read in the prophets, for instance, like in in, in instances like Ezekiel chapter 36, God literally tells his people, I'm not going to deliver you because of your covenant faithfulness. I'm not going to deliver you because you've done everything you're supposed to do. God literally tells them for the sake of my great name, I'm going to deliver you for the sake of my great name. I'm going to bring you out. For the sake of my great name, I am going to be good to you. And so these covenant promises, the nature of our covenant relationship with God, this is God himself literally pledging himself to be good and to do good and to be faithful and to save and to rescue and to restore his people. Do we see ourselves as a covenant people? The reason that we gather on Sundays, the reason that we gather to worship the Lord, the reason that we live the way that we do is because we are a covenant people. Christianity is not a political voting block. Christianity is not a social club. Being a Christian is not like being a part of some auxiliary. It is literally being brought into covenant relationship with the one true living God by his spirit through the person and the work of God, the son, Jesus Christ. We're a covenant people. We're a covenant people. 
And the thing about the covenant is that the covenant establishes the conditions by which we are to relate to him. God is the greater party in this covenant. We are the lesser party. (laughs) He's the greater party. We're the lesser party. And God says, I am this. I have done this. I will do this. I will be all of these things to you. And as a result of that, you will be this. Put it like this. In Exodus chapter 20, God said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of bondage, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. See what he did there? I am the God who delivered you. I am the God who set you free. As a result of me liberating you and bringing you freedom, you will be faithful to me. Because I've brought you out to be faithful to me. I've empowered you. I've set you up to be faithful. He remembers his covenant promises. And one of the things that I believe that there is just a, a great deficit of In the life of the church is that we don't rehearse and familiarize ourselves ourselves enough with the covenant promises of God in a way that's healthy. God pledges to restore us. He pledges to deliver us. He pledges to bring us out. He pledges to always be there. And that's one of the things that I love about the Psalms. For instance, in the Psalms, David says, I'm young. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. At the end of Psalm 27, David said, look, surely he's a I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know what he's saying, God, you are faithful to do that which you said you're going to do. And it's important that we have that that is what brings encouragement to us. That is what causes hope to be birthed in our hearts. God's covenants are prominent in every period of salvation history. It is how he relates to us. There's a there's a there's a phrase that can be abused and sometimes very misunderstood and I, and I kind of understand what people were trying to do when they said it. And maybe you've heard this before, but, you know, they'd say, you know, Christianity is not about religion. It's all about relationship. Anybody ever hear that before? You know, well, it's both. <laughs> it's covenant relationship. And that's pretty religious because <laughs> it's how we relate to God. Oh, yeah, it's about religion. Absolutely. It's about religion. It's about true and undefiled religion before God, our father. And it's also covenant relationship. It's also covenant relationship. God's faithful. God is faithful. And it's important that we remember that because the terms of the covenant is God again pledging himself to forgive us of our sins, to give us the gift of righteousness through faith in his son. To fill us and to seal us with his spirit. To provide for us, to set us free, to set us free from the penalty of sin, to set us free from the power of sin. And one day to bring about the restoration of all things, to consummate his kingdom, our salvation. 
where we will dwell with him face to face in a glorious, renewed creation. That's a really, really important thing for us to remember. That when we're walking through like these people are walking through, look, Joseph did not dream these dreams on his own. You know, Joseph didn't eat a bowl of spicy, spicy chili and then go to bed that night and have these crazy dreams about stuff bowing down to him. All right. God gave Joseph these dreams. It was God revealing to Joseph his plan and his purpose for his life. Joseph didn't give himself these dreams. I'm going to tell you something right now. In the darkest days of Joseph's life, it was those dreams that God gave him that sustained him. But if we remember, looking at verse 19, it says, until the time his prediction came true, the word of the Lord tested him. This word testing, it is refining. God, like a master refiner seeking the pure metal, is often said to try or test men's hearts. Refining is a purification process. And I believe one of the most important things that God purifies us from is rebellion against him. Like we don't like to admit that about ourselves. We don't like to recognize that about ourselves. But there are still, even as people who have been rescued by the grace of God, pockets of rebellion in our hearts and minds against God. And the refining process is God dealing with us graciously and gently to drive those things out of our lives, to drive rebellion out of our hearts, to conform us to the image of his son. And one of the things that that means is obedience to the will of God. This is the refining process. And Joseph walked through the refining process. And as we're walking through the refining process, part of the refining process, if not the bulk of it, takes place while we're waiting. So, for instance, have your Bibles with you, right? If you do, open your Bibles to Genesis. And we see here that in Genesis 1 and 2, just hold that little page up, those couple of pages, like, just, just look at that. Just physically look at that in your Bibles. You know, like everything is good right there, right? Just, just right there, everything's good. <laughs> everything's good. Now, God shows up in Genesis 3, you know, this is the portion of Scripture, right? And on their darkest day, when Adam and Eve rebelled against the will of God and broke the cosmos, fractured covenant relationship with God, he promises redemption. He promises redemption. Now, watch this. Genesis 4, in your Bibles, just hold that. And then just hold Genesis 4 all the way to Malachi chapter 4. Just hold that in your Bible. See what that looks like there? Just hold that in your Bible. Genesis 4 all the way to Malachi 4. That's a lot of history there. Literally hundreds and hundreds of years of human history. Many ups and downs, tragedies, victories, 
God's deliverance, man's covenant unfaithfulness. They had to wait a long, long time. And watch this. Even after Malachi 4, there were at least it's about 400 years of prophetic silence. After that portion of redemptive history concluded, about 400 years of prophetic silence. What's going on there? Like, wouldn't it have been a lot easier from our thinking? Like, you know, Genesis 3, we blew it. Genesis 4, bam, Jesus shows up. We're good. It's not the way God works. God does not work according to our timing. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And even then, Christ shows up. The promised son, the promised redeemer, the promised king and ruler shows up to inaugurate the kingdom. And even then, he is misunderstood. For instance, when he comes and he has his triumphal entry, they think that he's about to depose the Roman leader and overthrow Roman government oppression and usher in a season of freedom and an era of freedom and liberation for the Jewish people. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. So even then, the people of God are waiting. The people from Genesis to Malachi were waiting for the coming of the son to inaugurate the kingdom. Those of us after the birth, the sinless life and ministry, the atoning death and resurrection and glorious ascension of Jesus, we're now waiting the consummation of the kingdom. And that's the hard part for us is the waiting. But what the Advent teaches us is that God is faithful and that while we're waiting, God is working. The temptation for us is to believe that while we're waiting, God isn't working. That why doesn't when something breaks or when something bad happens or when something catastrophic hits, why don't just why isn't there just a solution just like that? Why, why is it? Why, why aren't things just set right just like that? Why does there have to be a wait? Why does there have to be a delay? What's up with this space, man, of time? That we have to endure. And I'm telling you, one of the things that's important for us as the people of God is to recognize the value in waiting and to recognize that God is working while we're waiting. That the process of waiting isn't a static process. It is dynamic. So it's not that we as a people of God ought to just be waiting, sitting and just twiddling our thumbs like, what are you doing? You know, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back, you know, just playing it safe, not really doing anything. You know, don't want to, don't really want to make any waves. Don't want to make anybody mad, man. I'm just trying to just, you know, just keep my head under the covers and, and just wait for Jesus to return. That's not the kind of life that God has called us to live. The Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. All of those things. But that waiting isn't like I'm just sitting on my blessed assurance doing nothing. That waiting is like a waiter in a restaurant serving faithfully. It's that kind of waiting. 
God promises to conform us to the image of his son. But listen to this, saints. We don't get to dictate to him what that process is. We don't get to tell God how to do what he has purposed to do. The prophet put it like this. Shall the thing being formed speak to the thing that is forming it, telling them, tell, tell it what to do? Jeremiah is the one that so eloquently spoke and said, he is the, the potter. We are the clay. We have to know that when God brings us into covenant relationship with himself, a few things. God determined to bring us into covenant relationship with himself before the world ever even existed. God covenanted to bring us into relationship with himself before he ever said, let there be light. He is not figuring this thing out as he goes. He is the God who sees the end of the thing from the beginning. And one of the things that, that's important for us to see in terms of our perspective and God's covenant promises is that, Father, you are our God. We are your people. You are my God. I am your adopted son or daughter. And you are making within me something that is pleasing to you. He is the great artist. We are the masterpieces. And God's process takes place in the waiting. We get into trouble when we try to short circuit it, when we try to, you know, figure ways out of the waiting, when we get uncomfortable and we start trying to do our own thing. That never works. Never, ever, ever, ever works. It's the waiting. But one of the things that we see here in the Psalms that should be an encouragement to our hearts is that. Throughout the redemptive history of his people, God is always there. Joseph is sold into slavery, but God is there. It's part of God's plan. Joseph is elevated to a position of power and prestige and influence. God uses him to provide for his people. God is providing for his people. God is preserving his people. But God is preserving his people. The preservation and provision of God is rooted in his covenant faithfulness. You ever, hear, you ever hear this statement that it's not love that sustains covenant, it's covenant that sustains love? It's God covenant faithfulness that sustains his love for his people. He loves us. It is his covenant faithfulness. And look, man, we promise a lot of things and throughout our lives and, and, you know, past, present, future, we've been promised things and sometimes people come through and sometimes they don't. Sometimes people fulfill what they're going to do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes people disappoint us. All of those things. But God will never disappoint. That's right. Never. He'll never disappoint. He brings his people out. I mean, he literally crushes Egypt. Like he, he systematically crushes Egypt. All of those plagues, God is literally judging the idols of that nation as he brings his people out. Every single plague, God is flexing his muscles and putting his power on display to show that everything that they worship is false and hollow. And he's putting his power on display showing that he's the one true living God. And he ends it. 
he ends it by not only bringing his people out, but he kills Pharaoh. He not only judges the system, he judges the one who presides over the system. He's showing his people, listen, I'm here to make you not just a little bit free, not just halfway free. I'm here to make you all the way free. And he does that. And as he brings them out with silver and gold, verse 37 says, nobody stumbled among them. I mean, they were loaded with riches. Can you imagine that? One day you're slaves. The next day you're loaded down with riches. Like only God can do that. The Bible literally says that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. They plundered them. And it wasn't even a stick up, man. I mean, he just... I mean, they 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 plundered the riches of the nation. They left loaded silver, gold, precious fabrics, all of these things. God protects them as they're going through the wilderness cloud in the daytime, fire by night. He gives them quail bread from heaven, manna. When they need to drink, God causes water to spring forth in the desert, showing them that he is their provider. Every single occurrence of these things is the covenant faithfulness of God. Verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. It's one of the cool things about covenant and the way that it works. Why do we pray in Jesus name? Is that just like a little garnish that we sprinkle at the end of a prayer? You know, it's saying in Jesus name, like Harry Potter waving his wand. Why do we pray in Jesus name? The reason that we are to pray in Jesus name is that the only way in which we can approach the father and ask him for anything is through the person and the work of his son. That when we ask the father to provide for us and forgive us and to help us, we are not asking based on our own merit. We are not asking based on our own goodness. We are not asking based on our own performance. We are asking these things based on the merits and the performance and the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way we can approach the father. The only way that we can approach the father is through the way that the son has provided. And we pray in Jesus name because as we weak and frail and flawed, the only way that we can stand before God in confidence is to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when we ask him and we ask him in the name of Christ, What we're basically saying is, Father, I'm asking you to forgive me, not because I'm so good, but because of your covenant faithfulness and your goodness and the work of your son. I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I have no case. All of the evidence is stacked against me. And my only hope is what you have done to atone for sin. It's the only basis we can ask God for forgiveness. 
Father, I'm asking you to meet my needs, not because I've done everything right, not because I've been morally perfect. I'm asking you, God of heaven and earth, to meet my physical needs because of your covenant faithfulness, because you brought me into covenant relationship with you, because you brought us into covenant relationship with yourself, with yourself. You made us these promises. And so, Father, we're holding your covenant promises up to you and we're believing that you will be faithful to do that which you said you're going to do when we ask God for help lead me not into temptation lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil we're not asking based on our own strength and our own willpower we're asking that based on the covenant faithfulness of God We see this in places like Psalm 51 when David prays his prayer of repentance. David says, because of out of your loving kindness, forgive me. I'm wrong. I'm the sinner. So based on your loving kindness and your covenant faithfulness and your mercy, forgive me, God. The manner in which God has brought us into covenant relationship and the meaning of faith Faith is being in covenant relationship with God and being absolutely reliant upon Him. And recognizing that, that's where we meet Him. God remembers His promises. It's okay and highly recommended that whatever you're walking through right now, if you're just trying to fight it on your own, you're going to lose. All right, let me just give you the Aaron James commentary. You're going to get your butt whipped. Whatever you're facing, if you're trying to fight it and battle it on your own, you are going to lose. But if we, in humility and faith, cast ourselves upon the mercy and the goodness of God, asking him to have his way, relying on him for grace and strength and wisdom, he will meet us there. And the same God that brought the Israelites victory is the same God that will bring us victory. The answer is not in us, man. The answer is not in us. I was watching a documentary on, um, on Bruce Lee on ESPN and um, you know, I just love the martial arts. And um, so just it was such a joy to watch that documentary and watch his life. He was a profound individual, very talented, very gifted. But even though there were some things about that documentary that I watched and I was in awe and I was impressed and I was inspired, I was also heartbroken. Because. The philosophy that he lived by and that was being repeated at the end of the documentary was all about looking within yourself for deliverance and freedom and being the answer. That if you just look in yourself, that's where you'll find the answers. And that's just not true. Scripture says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from which cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord.
Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That is where our victory is, saints. It's really important for us to remember that. Last verse here. All this happened so that they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Hallelujah. That's the end state right there. Wraps it up like God does all of this so that his people might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Let me tell you something. God never abandons his people. Not for a second. Not for a moment. God never abandons his people. When we feel abandoned, we're not abandoned. When it looks like we're abandoned, we're not abandoned. When it looks like we're isolated and alone, we're not isolated and alone. Because God never abandons his people. And the beautiful thing, one of the beautiful things about the covenant faithfulness of God is that the covenant faithfulness of God produces covenant faithfulness in his people. We could not be faithful to him unless he was first faithful to us. John put it like this. We love him because he first loved us. The covenant faithfulness of God produces covenant faithfulness in us as his people. Saints, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it's not simply that they did something wrong, like like they just made a mistake. When sin entered into creation, sin brought forth death. Something was very broken, comprehensively broken within us. Humanity went from loving God and wanting to please God to constantly thinking of ways and inventing methods to rebel against God. Salvation is not simply Jesus dying to atone for our sins. And he did that and that was needed because without the atoning of our sins, we would be left to face the divine justice and wrath of God. He atoned for our sin. But just as Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And God in his covenant faithfulness, if you read in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give them new hearts. I will remove the hearts of stone from them and I will give them hearts of flesh. I will put my spirit within them and I will cause them to obey me. And then God shows Ezekiel this valley of dry bones and there's nothing but death. There is absolutely no life whatsoever. But then the word of the Lord is spoken and the valley of dry bones turns into a standing living army. That means that there is creative power in salvation whereby God removes the old sinful nature from us and gives us new life within. It is the covenant faithfulness of God that produces covenant faithfulness within us. He gives us a new nature that desires to love him and serve him and obey him and look to him and rely on him. 
He's faithful. He's faithful. And sometimes, man, I don't have a bunch of fancy words to say. Sometimes all there is for us to remember is, Lord, you're faithful. You're faithful. The Lord is faithful. He will not leave his people. He will not abandon his people. Every single one of his covenant promises will come to pass in the lives of his people. And we will experience them. This is not a mind game. It's not some mental gimmick that enables us to cope with difficulty. There is a God. He's as real as the air we breathe. And he's faithful. And he will do what he said he's going to do. And while we are waiting, he is faithfully conforming us to the image of his son. That's what he's doing. Is that a comfortable process? Uh, no. Is it a valuable and much needed process? Yes. And the more we mature in Christ, the more we come to appreciate the process. You ever put yourself through something difficult to make yourself better? You ever do that before? Like a guy I know, he tweeted about, he was like, (laughs) I guess he's trying to get out and run. And he was like, I've not experienced the runner's high yet. It's not real. (laughs) And I was like, the runner's high actually is real. I felt it, man. It's actually pretty cool when you get there, you know? Those endorphins kick in and that point in your run when you feel like you could just run forever. You can't, but you feel like it at that moment, you know? And there are certain things that we learn that we do that it's like, man, this is difficult, but this difficulty is producing good. The more we mature in God, the more we learn to embrace the process and wait on the Lord because he's faithful. And that's what Advent teaches us. He's faithful. Let's pray.